0: In October of 1997, a 15-year-old boy named John Hartman was beaten to death on the streets of Fairbanks, Alaska. Four young men, three of them Athabascan Indians, were convicted of his murder. Yet years later, the case remains open and unsolved. Who's responsible? How many killers were out on the streets that night? Was racism to blame for these convictions? I'm your host, Matt Ralston, and this is the story of John Hartman and the Fairbanks Four, a case of murder on ice. John Hartman passed away on October 12, 1997, in the intensive care unit of the Fairbanks Memorial Hospital. About 24 hours after he was attacked on a nondescript street corner on the outskirts of downtown. Every year, the community honors him on this day. Nineteen years ago, around here, a young boy was murdered and the lives of four men were robbed, said Shirley Lee, a local preacher who led a vigil for the victim. But others aren't so sure of the innocence of the Fairbanks Four. Look at Kevin Peace, the white boy of the group who hid from police for days after the murder, then concocted a bogus story that he was with his 17-year-old girlfriend. But he wasn't. He was lying about his whereabouts that night. Is this something innocent people do? This wasn't a coerced confession. No one forced Kevin to do this. He didn't get pressured into it. Frankly, it makes him look guilty. Kevin Peace, 19 years old, is the white boy of the group. But that might not be entirely accurate. He's not a native Alaskan like the other three, who are Athabascan Indians. But he has some Crow Indian heritage. It's not entirely clear how much. I'm not sure it really matters. Culturally, Athabascans are an exceptionally warm people, embracing of outsiders. And many say they don't define themselves by genes, but by culture meaning one can be considered an Athabascan regardless of the color of their skin, an honorary native, so to speak. And Kevin, with his flaxen hair and blue eyes, appears to be such. He's native enough to be in prison with us, said Eugene Vent. Kevin is the biggest guy of the four. Six foot tall, 200 pounds, broad shoulders, a handsome guy who looks like he may carry a bit of anger. And perhaps he's justified in this. Leading up to his arrest, Kevin's father, John Peace, had been murdered in a random triple homicide. A traveling 53-year-old Bible thumper shot him and two fellow boarders at an 18-unit rooming house near downtown Fairbanks. He then walked across the street to a restaurant, called the police, And told them that he'd killed John Peace because the volume on his TV was up too loud. Suffice to say that if your dad is living in a sticky rooming house, walking distance to your own home, your family life isn't all that great. Mom's not sending you off to school with those Lunchables. Kevin had a juvenile record, including a past conviction for armed robbery. A few months earlier, A patrol officer had seen him roll through a stop sign. His car had a badly cracked windshield. He was using studded tires out of season, and inside the car was a marijuana pipe with resin in it. He was cited for each of these issues, ensuring that whatever money he had would go to these tickets and not to fixing his car. Oh, and he also had a suspended driver's license. So Kevin was on his way to jail. Understandably, he was not in a jovial mood, so while locked up in the police car, he started kicking the driver's side rear door, breaking the interior padding, relentlessly trying to damage it, $400 worth. Kevin, like George and Eugene and their friend Marvin, to this point had not led a charmed life. They all attended an alternative high school called Howard Luke. This was where kids who, for whatever reason, behavioral, academic, or some other circumstance, couldn't make it in the regular high schools, were sent. Frankly, Howard Luke had the reputation of being attended by losers and ne'er-do-wells, janky types, a lot of purple jeans and pocket chains, brass knuckles and switchblades, bought from the secret stash at a booth at the Tanana Valley State Fair. I'm not saying this was a fair assessment, but this was the reputation. Kevin's night that night kicked off by driving around with some friends. He went to the same house party as Eugene, the youngster. At 1.30 a.m., according to the driver and others at the party, they took the 15-minute drive from the party to the wedding reception at the Eagles Hall, the place to be that night. The bride and groom really should have thought better about this. It's Fairbanks. This is going to be a shit show. They stayed about five minutes, not finding their friend who was selling weed, and piled back into the car, arriving at this same friend's house at about 1.55 a.m. Some of the group, including Eugene, go back to the reception at the Eagles Hall. Kevin stays at the house for about 10 minutes until 2.15 a.m. and walks home. At this point... I'd like to point out, of the three of the Fairbanks Four I've covered so far, all three were in transit during the time universally agreed to be John Hartman's beating. Overheard by the lady at the women's shelter at 1.30 a.m., George was out walking. Kevin and Eugene were in Kevin Bradley's mom's car, heading that way, leaving right around the time of the beating. All the guys had friends who would vouch for their whereabouts as having had nothing to do with attacking John Hartman. But nonetheless, there are stronger alibis than being out walking or in a car headed toward the scene of the crime. There are stronger alibi witnesses than your friends. Yet the timelines given by friends and acquaintances would not allow them to be at the scene of the crime when John Hartman was beaten. So either they weren't there or an awful lot of people are lying. Or mistaken. Anyway, Kevin walks home from his friend's house. He'd been drinking much of the night, and apparently when he gets home, Kevin is not in great spirits. He's having that rage thing again that led him to attempt to destroy the cop car. At 3 a.m., Kevin's mom calls the police on him. He'd woken her up when he returned home, and according to his mom, he's drunk and, quote, tearing the place up. She's mad at him for waking her up, and the two argue. He overturns some potted plants, maybe does some more damage to the house. She'd tell police that he hit her. It's unclear whether he did or not. She'd later take it back. Wanting no part of this drama with his mom, he takes off on a three-wheeler buzzing down the road past that developing hostage situation near the Alaska Motor Inn. It's illegal to drive a three-wheeler on the road, especially while drunk, but police are real busy tonight. Fifteen minutes later, he arrives back at his same friend's house and crashes on the floor with a bunch of partied-out teenagers. Kevin's interrogation happened two days later. Detective Ring was having a hard time finding him. He was having a hard time finding him because Kevin was avoiding him. He'd almost certainly heard through the grapevine that George and Eugene were in trouble, but it's unclear if he knew they had placed him at the scene during their interrogations. Finally, he's tracked down by Detective Ring and brought in for questioning. He's seemingly unintimidated by Detective Ring, or else he's really good at pretending he's not. He's given him a real punky attitude. These are actual interrogation transcripts being read by actors. Actors who may need to fire their agents immediately.
1: Okay. Having those rights in mind, you mind talking with me? What do you want to know? Okay. Friday. Friday night. Saturday morning. That's what we're talking about. And I guess it was um, a dance or some sort of party down at the Eagles? Wasn't even there. Okay. And then there was a party down over at the uh, Alaska Motor Inn. Wasn't even there. Okay. And then there was uh, a fight that happened over at Barnett and Ninth Avenue. Seen it on the news. And that's where you've been identified as being. Okay. And that's from talking to these guys. All these guys. Uh, this is basically Eugene's. He places Marvin as the driver and he doesn't remember if you or George were sitting up front at the time. Uh, And he places himself there. They all pretty much give us the same scenario. they are talking about Marvin's little car. Well, that's... uh, we're way beyond that, okay?
2: Way beyond what?
1: That's just not true. We're way beyond that.
2: That is true, man. I was not with
1: it's not even possible.
2: It is possible, man. I was with my girlfriend at Fairview
1: Manor. Oh, what's her name?
2: Jessica Lundine, if you ask her.
1: Well, we'll do that. But I doubt that she really wants to get herself involved in lying for you. I think she'll end up coming around with the truth. By uh, what time did... Get, uh,
2: See, I don't know what's up with these kids, all right?
1: What time did you go over to Jessica's? Say about eleven, twelve o'clock. Okay.
2: She was at Larry's house. This one guy that lives in Fairview. Was
1: Larry there? Oh, he was at What was the apartment number? Fuck, I forgot. Building. Building D, I think. No. It's building one, two, three, four.
2: Building two or three?
1: Well, two building is the one that was burned up. Okay, that was three. Three D what? Four, five, six, seven. First floor, second floor, third floor. Well, it's only my third time there. It's the fourth time. Inside. So on the top floor or the middle floor? Middle floor. What's Jessica's phone number? Two, eight, nine, six. Hello. How old is she? Six seventeen. 17. Those are their parents? Yeah. Okay. How was it that she came to be over at Larry's apartment? She just got off work. Didn't have a ride. Didn't have a ride
2: home, so she got a ride from work with friends and worked to go to Larry's house. Where does she work? She works at Alaska Espresso Shop. Excuse me? Alaska Espresso and Chowder
1: House. Okay. Why'd she go over to Larry's if Larry wasn't there?
2: She's allowed to go there because her sister stays there.
1: And was her sister there? Mm. Okay. Who else was there? Mm. Any. I want to talk to a lawyer. Well, I can understand that because I'm going to have to check this out and it's going to. Turn out to be false. Okay, whatever, dude. Okay. Is that blood on your shirt there? That's from me. Want to check it? Oh Well, we'll be... I'll, I'll take it and I'll check it. Okay? I certainly will. Everyone knows you, Kevin.
2: Yeah, I know. Everyone does
1: know. Uh-huh. I mean, they know you. Why the fuck am I going to beat up a 15-year-old
0: kid? Well... Too much to drink? Kevin's alibi falls apart pretty much right away. I don't know what he thought was going to happen here. He doesn't know basic details about where he supposedly was. But he does issue a strong denial, never admitting to anything, saying he wasn't there at the scene of the crime. His girlfriend would later testify that they collaborated on lying about his whereabouts just as a precaution. You know, just in case, to keep him safe. She said she saw him the next day after John Hartman's attack about 14 hours later. And he was at his house, just hanging out in a regular mood. Not like how you would act if you'd recently stomped someone to death. Although, I don't know how one acts if they'd recently stomped someone to death.
2: So, what time? What time did you guys call you, get me from my mom's house? That was like what, four?
0: Well, I. I think so.
1: Probably. Uh, what time did this kid get beat up? Oh, much earlier than that. See? See what? That means you could be... I wasn't there, man. I'm telling you. No, you were over with Jessica at Larry's, okay? Don't involve your girlfriend in this, see? NYPD
2: Blues, man.
1: You can... You can involve your girlfriend, okay? But she's not going to lie to you about any... or. Or lie to us about an attempted murder case. She's not going to. Uh, well, I know she ain't gonna lie, she ain't lying. Uh-huh. So this is where you were, until you went home. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're not asking you any more questions. Yeah. Nope, we're not asking any more questions. Someone sexually assaulted this 15-year-old as well. I didn't sexually assault him. I'm not a sick fuck. Well, somebody was. Well, it wasn't fucking me. I don't go around fucking. Sexually assaulting 15-year-old boys. Somebody did. Right. That's what I'd like to talk to you about. Would Could have had the opportunity to do that. Because they blame you. They say you were the last one there. I wasn't even there. Okay. Okay. I'm not bullshitting you. I'm not bullshitting you, man. And, uh, Eugene signed this for me. I mean, I had him draw it out again. Who sat there, and I, I just finished talking to him again. Bullshit, man. And he said you were the loud, rowdy guy the bunch.
2: I wasn't even fucking there, man. I'm telling you.
1: I'm listening to you. I can't believe you and...
2: I, I wasn't around. I wouldn't be in my house if I thought I was going to be convicted of attempted murder. I'd be long fucking gone. Uh-huh. I've been in my house all fucking weekend. Uh-huh.
1: Why hasn't anybody been answering the phone there?
2: I don't know. The phone wasn't on the hook for a while, because I didn't have it plugged in, because the plug didn't work. didn't work, really.
0: How do you get blood on yourself? Kevin's interrogation is kind of confusing. It's unclear what he's trying to accomplish. He says he was at his house, and then he says he got back into town at some point, suggesting he was out of town.
1: Well, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that. But apparently we're not going to. We'll just uh, wait here and get you transported. You have some other warrants for your arrest, too.
2: Yeah, I know. Didn't pay some tickets. They
1: don't have the money for them. Well, the bail on this one's a million dollars. What am I supposed to do? Well, you probably can't post that, I would imagine. Fingerprints are on file. You ever been fingerprinted? Well, I'll go up and see if we can hurry up someone to transport you, then give Jessica a call and arrange an interview with her and with her parents. You don't need her parents. Well, sure I do. How old How old is she? 17. Yeah, I'll have her parents be present too. Whatever. Hope you were with Jessica. Yeah, hope you were. Don't worry about it. I was. I hope she didn't say you're a liar here.
0: I don't totally understand how Kevin thought this was going to work. Like, what was his plan here? That detectives wouldn't follow up on his alibi after a murder? I'm confused as to where he actually was. I don't know if anyone knows to this day. And why is he suggesting fleeing if he's charged for something he was innocent of? Would you lie because you were afraid of the cops? I don't know. It would be incredibly stupid. But Kevin doesn't dispute that. He says he was young and stupid. What he's always disputed is that he's a murderer and a sex criminal. Nonetheless, this interrogation was wrapped up really quickly. Kevin was sent to jail. This was his last day in the free world for a long, long time. Roberts, the fourth member of the Fairbanks Four, the front man, the alleged getaway driver, had a different experience that night than the other three guys. For one thing, all evidence points to him being sober. Marvin didn't drink all that much. He's a native guy, average height, slight build, an angular face with short black hair. He had graduated as the valedictorian of his high school, Howard Luke Academy. The year before. He's 19 years old. He has a job. He's never been in trouble with the law, except for the ubiquitous minor consuming alcohol tickets. But everyone in Fairbanks had one of those. His family's roots are in the town of Tanana, a few hundred miles upriver from Fairbanks, a town of a few hundred people. Few people I've encountered have anything negative to say about Marvin Roberts so I didn't speak to any of the 12 jurors who convicted him of murder. According to Marvin and several alibi witnesses, he spent the night dancing at the wedding reception at the Eagles Hall, though he also made several short trips in his car, a bright blue two-door Dodge Shadow hatchback. He was also trying, like nearly everyone else in town, to get a hold of a guy named Conan Gobel. This is the guy's house that Kevin, the white boy, slept at before evading police on a three wheeler. After dancing all night at the reception and making several short trips to shuttle people around or, say, go buy a soda for someone, Marvin also stopped by the party that night that got out of hand at the Alaska Motor Inn. The problem with Marvin's timeline that night, if there is a problem, is that he was out driving around a lot, so he could have in theory, been at the scene of the murder when Hartman was attacked at 1.30 a.m., although that would mean that several people who saw him at the wedding reception very close to that time would have been mistaken or lying. Still, he did dip in and out a lot, and driving around alone isn't a great alibi. Nonetheless, when he would return from these short trips, nobody at the reception noticed anything out of the ordinary with him, like that he had just stomped someone to death. Usually people that do that kind of thing try and act normal, but it becomes really obvious if you've ever seen 2020 or something like that. They might start hyperactively blabbering about nonsense and talking about how much they liked that kid named John Hartman. Or at the very least, like Chris Stone, John Hartman's friend, the last person on record to see him alive, just be acting really nervous, jittery, and frightened. At 11 p.m., Marvin picks up a friend about 10 blocks away from the wedding reception at the Eagles Hall. They drive a few blocks and stop to chat with some girls on 2nd Avenue. They get to the wedding, but it's dead, so they decide to drive around some more and kill time. They drive to a friend's house, but nobody's home, so they hang around in a liquor store parking lot for a while. Then they drive around to a few other places and hang out in other parking lots. They drive back to the wedding and spend a few minutes talking to some friends. Then they go to a gas station to page a drug dealer from a payphone and wait about 10 minutes for a response but don't hear back. At 11.50 p.m., Marvin goes into the wedding reception and dances with a series of women who would later vouch for his whereabouts. He's apparently one hell of a dancer. After all, he's 19, he's single, he's nimble, he's really living it up tonight. John Hartman is attacked at 1.30 a.m., though nobody at the wedding reception would have known this. But most everyone there would remember a scene that took place right around that exact time, as a bloodied wedding guest would stagger up the steps of the reception hall, having just been assaulted by a group of thugs. The side plot of Frank Dayton, a middle-aged native guy, is pivotal to this entire saga. Frank was at the wedding reception, but at about 1 a.m. he walked a few blocks over, under the cover of darkness and sparse downtown streetlights, to meet a friend. As Frank was walking alone, he heard a car pull up behind him, as it slowed to a crawl. Then he was tripped and taken down to the ground. His face was smashed into the pavement. He tried to stand up, but his foot was stepped on, by a white high top, He was kicked as he lay on the ground, helpless. A hand frisked his pockets. Someone took a $20 bill from him. He couldn't see the attackers, just the high top. But he craned his head and saw them drive away in a light-colored, good-sized, four-door car. When Frank arrived back to the reception, flustered and beaten, it caused quite a commotion and he was swarmed by onlookers curious as to what would happen and friends tending to him to make sure he was okay. And guests recalled seeing Marvin standing around with the others. Someone called 911 to report the attack, and the call was logged at one thirty four a.m., four minutes after the John Hartman attack, the scene of which was maybe two minutes away by car. Also, taking all of this in, Drunk and high, smoking a cigarette outside on the patio, was Arlo Olson, the star witness who would come into play later on. Of course, at this point, Marvin doesn't know he'd be accused of murder. At 2 a.m., he and two friends drive over to a nightclub called Detour. What happened was the band at the reception hall had stopped playing, but Marvin, being really on top of the situation, wanted to tell people that the band was simply taking a break and going to resume playing again soon basically marvin will just take any opportunity to drive somewhere at 2 15 a.m he arrives back at the wedding reception between 2 30 and 2 45 he drops off a few friends at conan's house and heads back to the wedding reception he drives back to the detour to pick up a friend but can't find her at 3 30 he goes to a bar and picks up a friend and drops him off at his apartment and now at 3 50 a.m everything has really died down But Marvin and two friends go to that party at the Alaska Motor Inn. He sees a drunken Eugene sitting on the bed. Marvin would say he was not in any way cool with the scene at the motel. Guy's belligerent and rearing to fight. It looked like trouble was brewing. So much so that one of the friends he'd arrived with got caught in the drunken brawling and and almost brawling. And so Marvin just left him there, dropped his other friend off, went to Burger King, and went home. The next morning, police would arrive at his house and bring him to the station. Marvin is cooperative. He's also obviously nervous. He's unaware that, with Detective Ring's help, George and Eugene had identified him as being involved in the Hartman attack. Detective Ring, convinced that those at the Alaska Motor Inn, the party which had turned violent, where Eugene had pulled a gun on the night clerk, The night clerk who had wrongfully identified John Hartman as being present at the party, though he never was, were behind the beating. John Hartman was stomped to death as a car sped away. Of all the people who came to the Alaska Motor Inn, Marvin Roberts was the only one with a car. Marvin is being interviewed by Deputy Kendrick, not Detective Ring. These interview transcripts are being read by actors.
3: Okay, so what did you do from the time that the Eagles party broke up and the time that you went over to...
4: Alaskan Motor Inn? Alaskan Motor Inn. Um, we just, we drove around. Cruising around? Yeah. Okay. We were driving all over trying, trying to look for girls, I guess. Just cruising? Yeah.
3: Now well that's during the time that your car is is over on Barnett Street. Cruising by over there?
4: Yeah.
3: Right?
4: Yeah.
3: Okay, all right. So how many times did you cruise down Barnett?
4: Uh yeah. Um uh I can't recall. I don't know, a few? A few times.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Note, Barnett Street is where John Hartman was found, and Marvin just inadvertently agreed he was there. This isn't particularly damning information. If you're driving around the downtown Fairbanks area, there's a good chance you'll hit Barnett Street, but...
3: Okay. If it wasn't you, okay, then... Why didn't you tell me the truth that Kevin and Eugene were in
4: your car? They weren't in my car. They were in your car last night. No, they weren't in my car. I wouldn't let them in my car. Why? Because they were too drunk is why. How could
3: you cruise for an hour and a half and not remember where you went?
4: Um, Because um, you can cruise all over place around around town uh-huh okay what time did you go home uh i don't know about four forty-five, i guess okay and did you stop anywhere yeah at the burger king stopped at the burger king and who were you with just myself
3: just yourself yeah so you didn't stop with Dan and um, Angelo
2: at Burger King? No. This is just after I dropped them off.
3: Okay. So you said you were at the Alaska Motor Inn at 4 or 4.30, but then you were
4: also at Burger King at 4 or 4.30. No. I was, I left at, um, I probably want to drop these guys off, and then, I don't know, there's a big time span. I never keep track of the time. Okay. So
3: if we find Daniel Huntington, what is Daniel going to say?
4: I don't know. Um, Probably everything I said, probably. Okay, so Daniel's going to say...
3: That he was with you from the moment that you picked him up at eleven thirty until the time that you dropped him off at four four thirty in the morning.
4: Yeah, he's he said say that. Yeah, was he with you during that whole time? Um, I dropped him off. Where did you drop him off at? That's right. I, I was trying to recall it. Uh-huh. Um,
2: Me and Angela left him at the Alaskan Motor Inn in that
4: room, but we told him to go with us, but it was getting pretty hot, and we're like, let's go. So I didn't drop him off at home. Okay, so you left him at the room? Yeah.
0: Marvin is being informal. He doesn't even seem to be processing that he's a suspect. Seems like he thinks he's just there to give information. But informal could be another way of saying he doesn't have his facts straight. Now, Detective Jim Geyer, who had been sitting in during this interrogation, pipes up, apparently going in for the kill. If you want to continue
4: this denial thing, this is something that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. Believe me, I understand how scared you are. I'm scared because I'm innocent.
0: You're scared,
4: Martin. I'm scared because I'm innocent.
0: I'm scared because I'm innocent. If indeed he is, then these words are haunting. Marvin had several witnesses who saw him at the wedding reception that night. One of whom was Gary Edwin, a good friend of Marvin's from the same town of Tanana. He's 24 years old, married, a substance abuse counselor. He claims to have noticed Marvin when Frank Dayton, who had just been mugged, ambled up to the reception hall at 1.30 a.m. And that Marvin asked him what happened. If true... His testimony would prove Marvin couldn't have been at the scene of the Hartman attack. Gary Edwin would tell a journalist, I spent the entire, well, hours, you know, that night with Marvin. I would say from around midnight until at least 2 a.m., even later, when the reception ended. He sat with us at our table, and I saw him basically the whole night, dancing, visiting, having fun. Of course, this is a good friend of Marvin's, and they're from the same town. He couldn't have seen Marvin the whole night, because according to Marvin, he left several times. Yet many other upstanding members of the community vouched for Marvin Roberts being at the reception around the time of the John Hartman attack. Names like Carrie Orison, Eileen Newman, Tracy Monroe, Angelo Edwin, Eileen Newman, Frank Dayton, Daniel Huntington, and more. It's a lot of alibi witnesses. The problem, from my perspective, is that it was a big party. People were drinking. There was a lot going on. No one was keeping track of time. No one was constantly looking at their cell phones because they didn't have them. There was no clock on the wall. Alcohol was served until 3 a.m. in Alaska. So at 1.30, there's no cutoff imminent. It's really the height of things. There's no reason to be checking your watch. So Marvin had plenty of people who saw him around that time, but not many at exactly that time. And that led to some inconsistencies. People seeing Marvin in two different places around the same time, for example. And that might make sense because he was hopping in and out of the reception. But during trial, prosecuting attorney Jeff O'Brien made the most of these overlapping sightings, stating, Mr. Roberts has got some problems with his alibi. He can't be in all those places at once. Then, relating to the alibi, Jeff O'Brien said something that made more than a few jaws drop. In explaining why so many people, all of them native, had claimed to see Marvin at the reception that night, he said to jurors, quote, It reminded me of the movie where the Romans have a bunch of prisoners Slaves, And there's an uprising amongst the slaves because of the conditions. And the leader of the uprising, apparently, was Spartacus. When the Romans came looking for Spartacus, much like the witnesses here, the slaves stepped forward declaring, I am Spartacus, one after another. Jigga what? Now, I'd still like to believe that a good portion of America is not comprised of racist bastards. That they see people for what's inside of them. Judge them by the content of their character. And maybe your college education did you good. And you're so not racist that you look at the case of the Fairbanks 4 and say, why are these activists bringing race into this? What does being native have to do with anything? Then you hear something like what Jeff O'Brien said, and you think, well, eh. Growing up in Fairbanks, I don't remember meeting very many racists. One kid in the fifth grade comes to mind. He threw the N-word around quite a bit. But he was a military kid. They were transferred from Kentucky, so I don't count that. Despite what you may think, Fairbanks is a very diverse community. Many African-Americans came north to escape persecution as part of the Great Migration. Fairbanks is basically a military town. This has brought people of all colors to the interior. Many of these people like the egalitarian nature of the place, as much so as is possible in America, where the richest guy in town just might own a car dealership, and where kids who live in fancy housing developments hang out with kids who live in trailer parks And the parents don't even remark on it. Yet, you would hear comments here and there. If you were driving around downtown, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to point and laugh at the drunk natives. People mostly from the proverbial village who may be stumbling around drunk in the afternoon. Not having that city look to them, but long black hair contained by a bandana and people would make fun of the village accents that natives would carry with them to the city. The folksy muffled English influenced by the Athabascan or maybe Inupiaq Eskimo language still spoken in parts, anthropologists suggest that the words are pronounced with the mouth barely open, an adaptation that won't allow heat to escape one's body. At this point, It seems difficult to untie the Fairbanks Four from the issue of race. With a prosecutor openly comparing Native people to unruly, distrustful slaves and all. Slaves stepping forward, declaring, I am Spartacus. The implication being that one Native would never roll over on another, even if they knew that said Native had just stomped a boy to death. Yeah. They really stick together like that, huh, Jeff? Spartacus was, of course, an escaped slave who led a slave uprising against the Roman Republic. The slaves who stood up for him were not doing so out of blind loyalty, but to topple a system who had been oppressing them for generations. That the Fairbanks Four... Would after 18 years have their convictions vacated may have been a sweet taste of irony for these witnesses who came forward. But Native people don't have a secret corner they meet on to figure these things out. It wasn't part of some grand conspiracy. They were just saying they saw a dude that night. Frankly, after researching this case, I've come to see a side of Fairbanks that I didn't see growing up. And I think racist sentiment may have factored into the charging and convictions of the Fairbanks Four. In fact, you don't have to look much further than John Hartman's brother, Sean Kelly, who frankly, I think is pretty damn racist. Sean Kelly was a fixture at the Fairbanks Correctional Facility and just so happened to be in jail at the same time of the Fairbanks Four. Sean Kelly is thin, like his younger brother, and bears a striking resemblance to him, though he has blonde hair as opposed to John Hartman's darker color. He knows in his heart, with 100% certainty, that the Fairbanks Four are guilty, though his stance could be seen as ulterior as he has been pursuing a $6.2 million civil lawsuit against the Fairbanks Four for the death of his brother. If they're innocent, he needs a new plan. Pull tabs, maybe. Sean Kelly has said repeatedly that Eugene, the youngster, apologized to him in jail for his involvement in his brother's death, saying that he was there, but the other guys did it. He says that Eugene also taunted him, mouthing fuck you to him and flipping him off. Like many others, he believes John Hartman's friend, Chris Stone, saw what happened. Alaska, like pretty much everywhere else, has gangs in prison, and they're segregated by race. The Native gang is called the Native Brotherhood. Sean Kelly, given that he spent a lot of time in the Kit Kat, has close ties to the white supremacist gang. In fact, he says his best friend since the age of 14 is a swastika-covered guy who legally changed his name to Filthy Führ. Yeah, Führ, like as in Hitler. Filthy Führ had been in prison for shooting a cop, which isn't surprising, since a tattoo on his face reads, Kill Cops. While in prison, he's been indicted for his part on taking a hit out on someone on the outside. He just really shouldn't be best friend material, is what I'm saying. Now, a self-described homeless drug addict, Sean Kelly is clearly tortured by the violent demise of his brother. He says he thinks about it constantly, that it has ruined him emotionally, that he can no longer maintain relationships. He has never backed down from his assertion that Eugene Vent apologized to him. And he says he's forced to constantly argue and defend himself to those who believe the Fairbanks Four are innocent. And this has made him a pariah that he's had to leave Alaska because he's not safe from retaliation on the streets. I've taken the following online rants of Sean Kelly's from a Facebook page he runs. It's called Justice for John Hartman. All your Native Brotherhood threats won't move me. Can't really take testifying on the news and stand back anyway, but money will. I'm just a poor white kid claiming South Side double-wide. I still want to live in Alaska, but now I have to worry about who sees me at the store or in traffic or who I see because, well, the situation is unresolved in my book. The entire population of Alaska who have been entertained by the endless supply of fabricated news and lies and pandering to the native population while us simple, no-culture-having white folk get fucked over again and again and no one does anything to make it right. He states that the local paper, the Fairbanks Daily News Miner, as well as the rest of the media, are behind a huge cover-up and that they exert influence onto the policies of the state. Kind of a, the media is the devil, deep state, conspiracy thing, if that sounds familiar. I should have gotten my own revenge on them. And fuck your laws, government, and internet circus. Just so you can make your living and feed your kids and feel like your tax dollars are being spent on keeping the rights of murderers and rapists intact so they're not going to have to do the time they were sentenced to or pay the settlement they owe and whatnot. Even better. Let's make sure all the murderers have top-notch pro bono lawyers and the Alaska Innocence Project can get more guilty natives out of jail. The only thing close to a comfort zone I get out of leaving Alaska without my fucking revenge and justice and money. I know they are still hurting you and your family and are hella gonna do more damage to the native Alaskans now than they ever could behind bars. And being guilty pieces of shit. Every kid who OD'd an innocent woman that gets beaten and raped and robbed Everyone knows that the Fairbanks Four get a free ride. After all, they got your lies and alibis and your donations to protect their rights. Too bad John Hartman didn't have any rights to protect. Must have been because we were poor and believe in Christ, and everyone in my family tries to be a good influence and represent the truth of the Lord. Enjoy your fruit. Verily, I say, that you have your reward. And don't ask me to do or tell you shit that you want to hear, but expect I will tell you the truth as I know it. And from here on, I guess I'm going to talk shit and clown you idiots for your whack-ass racism and overall stupidity. If anyone wants to help me or my family for real, just ask me how, or find a lawyer who has the nuts and ain't afraid of the Alaska government or natives. Us white trash drug addicts got more common sense than all you idiots put together. That's why everyone hates the white people. They're intelligent and direct. That is our culture. Well, Sean Kelly is definitely direct. I don't think anyone's arguing that. Um, he did just say that white people are more intelligent than native people. And that, that goes along with his whole diatribe here, which is that of reverse discrimination uh, that native people are privileged and white people are getting the short end of the stick. It'd be a stance that's hard to back up if you've ever been to a native village. Or maybe to a prison in Alaska, where natives make up 40% of the population, as opposed to 14% outside the prison walls. The News Miner supports the Alaska natives, and people have made their money and lives all better using it to throw it in my face that the people who actually committed the act of killing my brother are the victims, even more so than the one person who lost his life. So your heroes, and the alaska native population can get their murderers home and fucking and drinking and running their native brotherhood gang of rapists and child molesters and murderers can justify the existence of the innocence project and let those maggots out of jail on the anniversary of both of john hartman's parents wedding day every day i can't wait to see my family that has passed beyond where we're at so this adventure among this evil world is over god has been the only one who has been my witness and here i am I'm not bringing all this up to make Sean Kelly look like a bad guy. He's been through something unimaginable. And it seems likely that this bitterness may have colored many of his thoughts and beliefs. He's certain that his brother's killers have been released from prison. That guys who he knows firsthand stomped his little brother to death. I'm simply bringing this up to say to anyone that says that race isn't a factor in this case, you should probably think again, brother. Next, we'll get into the evidence against the Fairbanks Four. It's murky. There are things that point to their guilt and to their innocence. This is the highest profile murder case in the history of Fairbanks. Maybe in the history of Alaska. So we did have a serial killer who owned a bakery and a congressman who disappeared in an airplane. Next time, Detective Ring seeks out a local criminal, a flunky who would turn state's witness. And Chris Stone suddenly has some information for detectives. But for whose benefit will this be? We'll find out next time. On Murder on Ice, the story of John Hartman and the Fairbanks Four. Follow us on Twitter at Murder on Ice. On Instagram at Murder on Ice. Facebook, Fairbanks Podcast. Follow me on Twitter, The Matt Ralston. Follow me on Instagram, The, T-H-E Matt Ralston. M-A-T-T-R-A-L-S-T-O-N. Please tell a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcast. It takes about a minute. Thank you to Will Lepardus as Detective Aaron Ring. Josh Chizinski as Kevin Pease. Garrett Phillips as Deputy Kendrick. Pete Giovine as Marvin Roberts. Music by Arlo Sanders, written and produced by me, Matt Ralston. See you next time.